0: As we prepare ourselves for the message, will you join me in prayer? Father, we ask that you would be with us to open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, that we may hear from you. Translate in the words that are spoken into the language of our heart, that we may hear, that we may obey, that we may be blessed by the hearing of your word, the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name. Today we're reading from Psalm 123, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. So we are in our series on the Psalms of Ascent, uh, ranging from Psalm 120 through to 135. And if you uh, remember from previous sermons, the Psalms of Ascent were sung on the three pilgrimages that the Israelites made to Jerusalem each year. They went up to Jerusalem to celebrate their identity as the people of God. And as they set out on these pilgrimages, they sang songs on their journey. As they walked towards Jerusalem, because it would take sometimes uh, weeks or days to get there, they would sing as they went these songs of ascent. And these psalms give voice to an inner dynamic of the pilgrimage of the people of God. And it wasn't just that the pilgrimages were an end in themselves. They captured a deeper sense of pilgrimage that the Israelites were on. They characterized the life of God's people. It's something we call discipleship, a constant movement into a place or a life of full worship. So these psalms also fit our experience of the Christian walk. It's a good metaphor for pilgrim, or the Christian path. We are pilgrims walking to the city of God, the New Jerusalem, described in Revelation 21. But we are not literally, of course, walking anywhere. It captures a deeper sense. They capture a deeper sense of our pilgrimages. They capture a deeper, or they characterize our life as God's people. They capture our discipleship, our constant movement into a place and a life of worship. We are pilgrims then in two senses, right? Firstly, this is not our home. The aim is not to get comfortable, and the aim is also not to be a martyr for our own glory. The truth is, this is not about us. It's about the reason, the purpose, the pilgrimage itself. It's about the call of God and our life. The aim is to be faithful to God's calling, to respond to His calling. And secondly, we are pilgrimages in the sense that we need training to live these lives of worship, to walk these paths, to be on this pilgrimage. When I was a young child, my parents sent me on a camp. It was a 10-day summer camp where I hiked through the mountains. It was exhausting. About a week after that, when I got home, I went for a friendly hike with a, with a schoolmate of mine up this tall mountain. I got to the top and I was ready to go, and he was panting and puffing and nearly dead. And what had happened was, because I had spent the time doing 10 weeks of hiking, that small little hill just seemed like nothing to me, but to him it was something huge, it was something big. So as we walk intentionally towards Jerusalem, as we're faithful to God's calling, in a sense, we get fitter to walk towards Jerusalem. We get fitter walking towards Jerusalem on our pilgrimage by walking on our pilgrimage. Now, I don't want you to think that this is the same sort of strength as hiking up a mountain. You see, fitness, Christian fitness or Christian maturity really means recognizing and living out of a place of dependence and submission so the more we practice our pilgrimage our walk of faithfulness the more we allow the Holy Spirit and those around us to disciple ourselves the more dependent we become the more we submit to Christ So. As we read these Psalms of Ascent, we should expect to find these messages or these things in them. And we'll note straight away, as we looked at Psalm 123, just these four verses, there is no reckless triumphalism here. There's no sense that this is just a simple walk in the park. There is antagonism and animosity. There is fear and anxiety. There is persecution and opposition. Now, we've talked about the Psalms of Ascent and the fact that they come in three sets or sets of three the first set and you can remember it with the three three eighties they come with the first in the series of three talks about the hardship the second the help that comes from god and then the hope that we find in the coming kingdom in the new jerusalem psalm 123 is a hardship psalm of ascent it talks about dealing with ridicule and contempt and it talks about this not just as a passing phase. You'll see in verses 3 and 4, it says, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. And That's not just something the translator threw in there. In fact, that word means we've, we have endured contempt that has overflown, that has filled up, that has taken over our life. It goes on again, we have endured no end of ridicule. What he's saying here is that the the hardship, the ridicule, the contempt that they they are experiencing is filled to the brim and overflowing. It is an ongoing systematic pattern of ridicule and contempt. And the psalm is implying in a sense that this is how the world will treat the true disciple. So we have three questions to ask of this psalm as we look at it today. The first one may be, for many of us, where's the hardship? Where is the ridicule and contempt? Second one is, how do we deal with it? And I'll tell you the answer because it's pretty clear in the psalm. We wait on God's mercy. And then the third one we're going to look at is, how do we wait for God's mercy? So, where is the hardship? How do we deal with it? And how do we wait for God's mercy? Let's jump into the first point. Where is the hardship? Now we see that the hardship is contempt and ridicule. And we also see, let me read it again, that it comes from the ridicule from the arrogant of contempt from the proud. It comes from the proud and the arrogant. Now who are the proud and the arrogant? Now this is as much a worldview as it is a disposition. In some ways, in ancient times, it was complimentary at least to yourself and it certainly communicated something to someone else when you behaved in ways which we in our culture would consider proud and arrogant when you boasted or spoke of who you were it was a statement of authority of position and we see this often with pharaoh or with the rulers of assyria it wasn't something that surprised people in the culture there was no false modesty in ancient near east times so boasting was part of the culture, and maybe we can make the claim that it's coming back into vogue in US politics today. But the biblical, uh, the biblical definition for pride and arrogance then really is cultural rejection of the authority or position of God as the creator or sustainer or king. So it's much more about a posture towards God. A posture within the culture and this community towards God. A rejection of the authority or position of God as the creator or the sustainer of, or, the, or the king. So when you read those words through the Psalms, pride and arrogance, remember that. They're talking about a disposition towards God. Now Psalm 20, 123 says that regardless of disposition, The culture around them rejected the authority and the position of God as creator, sustainer, and king. And they showed contempt or ridicule to God's people. They showed contempt to those who acknowledged God as creator, sustainer, and king. And I would say that that is certainly our experience or our understanding of the culture around us. Yahweh is dead long live the new gods of consumerism and hedonism and self-reliance all hail the self-made and the self-sufficient but psalm 123 refers to this culture clash that leads to contempt and ridicule and we've got a question that we have to ask ourselves where's the clash do our lives clash with the culture around us now in some cases we can say this really clear Right now, Rob and Annucci is working to have uh, a hostage released uh, from the Taliban in Afghanistan. We can clearly say that there's a cultural clash there and we see more than just ridicule or rejection, but we also see a sense of, of extreme persecution. But the subtle matter of our culture in the United States is not the death of all gods, It's just the death of an absolute creator sustainer God that rejects all other gods but himself. There's a thin veneer of tolerance that says all religions or all beliefs are equally valid so long as they don't make truth claims that impinge on anyone else's beliefs. Now, really, I think it's pretty easy to see that these things are nonsense. We're in the market now for a new car. Are all cars created equal? I can tell you that we're looking at reliability. And there's a big, most of you probably have never heard of the Trevi. It was a car that was made in Eastern Europe. And it was so bad, so bad in fact, that when they overthrew uh, the Soviets, the Germans actually knocked down the statues that represented the Soviet government. And they put our Trevi in the middle of this big roundabout covered in cement as a, uh, this is what we think of you statement to the Soviets. Now compare the Trevi to the Toyota Corolla. Are they truly equal? No, they're not. If you investigate these things, you see that one uh, is much more valid, much more reliable, much more consistent than the other. Now we're not really evaluating cars based on performance. But if you compare the Toyota uh, Corolla to a Ferrari, You'll see that they are not equal they are not created equal and so it is with world views they are not created equal and the assumption that we should just extend this idea not of tolerance per se but tolerance that they are all equally valid is nonsense the tolerance that doesn't persecute people is good the tolerance that doesn't coerce people is good but the tolerance that doesn't bring the truth of God's claim to exclusivity to the culture around us is actually blasphemy. It's using the Lord's name in vain. Now we don't have to legislate or protest, but we do have to be truthful with neighbors and friends. We can't be fearfully protective. What would that say about our God? If we sat in fear and we felt that we needed to protect Him. But we, but nor can we be made culturally inert, gospelly impotent, losing our salt and light. Ask yourself, is this why you don't tell people about Jesus? Is this why you don't invite people to church? Are you avoiding the culture clash, avoiding contempt and ridicule? And if you are, don't even bother listening to the rest of this sermon. Reflect on this. Is this really where you want to be? All right, moving on to the second point. How do you deal with ridicule and hardship? Okay, so you've decided you need to be salt and light, and you're willing to clash with the culture around you. Welcome to the program's life of Psalm 123. Now, how do you deal with being, in our culture, subtly ridiculed and held in contempt? Now, according to Psalm 123, We see that you wait on God's mercy. No violent protests, no grabs for coercive or manipulative power. You wait on God's mercy. And we see that here, uh, at least implied in verse 3. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us, for we have endured. That word endured. We've been here for a long time waiting for your mercy. We haven't taken things into our own hands. We have endured. But we see it more strongly in in verse 2. The eyes of the slave look to the hand of the master, and as and the eyes of the female slave look to the hand of her mistress. The male slave looks to the master, the female slave looks to her mistress. And there are wrong ways to read this. We could read it that the psalmist does not have capacity to act against the culture. That's not true. They're pilgrimaging through Israel. They're going of parts of Israel up to Jerusalem. And they're coming across people in Israel who are saying, ah, eh, I'm not going to do that pilgrimage. I've got better things to do. I've got uh, land to till. I've got, I'm engaged in my own set of activities. I really am not interested in this whole Yahweh worship thing. So it's not that they don't have the power or the capacity to act up. Just as we have the capacity to protest or coerce outcomes in our culture, it's not a question of capacity. So we shouldn't read it as a slave who has no capacity also we shouldn't read this as the psalmist simply in a slave master relationship with god now there's certainly a characteristic of that relationship that's trying to be pointed at here but it is not that we are slaves of yahweh so the right way to read this is to understand that slaves had no legal right to defend themselves from verbal or physical attacks because they represented the master. They were the ambassador in a sense, the image bearer. They were doing his bidding. It was on the impetus of the master, if the slave was doing the master's bidding, to defend the slave for doing the master's bidding. So we see here a relationship of dependence and submission expressed here in the relationship of slavery And that puts the onus on God Himself to defend His people. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The God, the Master, the God has the obligation to defend. And you can easily substitute words that make more sense in our culture, like ambassador. An ambassador doing the bidding of the president will be defended and protected by the president. The image bearer is protected by the the image that he is bearing, by God himself. We are to wait on the Lord for his mercy. When we are doing his bidding, we wait on his mercy when we are ridiculed or held in contempt. Now there are examples of this from Scripture. Perhaps the most famous Old Testament one comes from Nehemiah 4, when they're rebuilding the wall. And the ridicule is pretty, it's actually pretty funny. It's pretty clever. If I was going to be doing ridicule, I would think I'd take lessons from the way Sunbalat, who was a Horonite, and Tobiah, who was an Ammonite. They were the surrounding governors in the area that made up Samaria. The insults and contempts they threw at this ragtag bunch of returning israelites who were trying to build a wall were pretty pretty good they called them feeble jews <coughs> who can't bring burnt stones and rubble back to life one of them said a fox climbing on the wall would make it fall down now we see in this that nehemiah does not respond to their personal attacks he waits on God for mercy he does however keep being faithful to his calling so he sets about building the wall and he certainly makes adjustments to the way he's building the wall to take account of what's going on but this is not a you've you have offended me proposition and my name is under threat and i need retribution this is saying no i'm doing the work of god and i'm going to leave the vengeance i'm going to leave the retribution i'm going to leave the response up to god they wait on the lord for mercy despite the persistence and the, the constant contempt ridicule and even physical threat that they're under another example here is acts 6 and 7 stephen the very first hellenist deacon appointed The first non-Jewish, in a sense, Jew that's put in the place of overseeing the deacons. One chapter beforehand starts doing signs and miracles and is engaged in the spread of the gospel. He's responding to the call that's been put on his life. First thing that happens is they drum up charges against him. Probably easy to drum up charges against someone who's a foreigner than someone of the other disciples who were actually part of the culture the dominant culture in jerusalem and they claim make claims that he's being blasphemous now he doesn't provide a personal defense what he does is he gives what is one of the best sermons that you'll see that sums up the gospel he continues doing the work he's called to he waits on God for mercy but he continues to respond faithfully to the calling that's on uh, that's being put on his heart He is persistent in calling over contempt, ridicule, and physical threat that in fact, in his case, even leads to death. So, our calling as people in this world is is really in this time between the first and the second coming of Christ is the Great Commission. Now, that means that everything you do needs to be framed up in that. How you teach, how you work, how you write and direct and act in plays, Everything that you do is framed around how am I living out the call on my life? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples. How you do business management, how you do teaching, how you do editing, how you do mechanical engineering, how you interact with your friends and your neighbors, the boldness you show in talking about your faith and living it out, your willingness to expose yourself to ridicule and to contempt. Are you willing to persist in that calling despite the fact that you face ridicule and contempt? Are you willing then, when you are doing that, to wait on God's mercy? We have, and we've said this every week since we began this series, we are like people on a road trip. We've driven past the road stop where everyone got out, not everyone got back in. Some of the family is missing from the car. What is our response? Are we going to be faithful in finding family that's missing? Are we going to go out into Denver's and look for them? Are we going to pray, be intentional in connecting, and expecting God to work I- in those lives? Okay. So a summary so far as we move to our third question. How do we wait for God's mercy? First, the calling is not to avoid the temptation to live just enough of the Christian life to have credibility, but not so much so that we can avoid experiencing ridicule and contempt in the culture. The question is not how do we live as the people of God and skip the ridicule and the contempt. The question is how as pilgrims do we respond To the inevitable ridicule and contempt that we'll experience and the answer according to psalm 123 is we wait on god for mercy we wait on god to act we wait on god to intervene and that alone and that alone is our response now how do we do this psalm 123 gives us three foundation stones on which we can build uh an understanding of, of this the first is in verse 1 the very first line I lift my eyes to you to you who sit enthroned in heaven we look up we look to we worship a God sitting on a throne that's built on righteousness and justice a rule that's unassailable a throne that speaks to us of sovereignty and supremacy remember that God is the creator and the sustainer but more than just remembering We worship. We lift our eyes up. We set our sights on this God. We build our lives around this God. We practice putting our trust in this God. We would need a plan B if God were any less than majestic, any less than eternal, all-powerful, any less than the Creator and the Sustainer and the King. Let me ask you this. How many of you are living out plan B? We need to worship our way out of that. Majesty. Majesty for Nehemiah meant staying true to his calling and trusting in God in his defense as he followed through on that calling. Majesty for Stephen meant leaning in and trusting God even though he was stoned. And we see that in that line, that beautiful line from Stephen where he's just about To be stoned to death and he looks up and he sees there's a clouds opening and he sees Christ sitting at the right hand of God and it's true for us too as we figuratively walk to the New Jerusalem as we think about what does it mean to to follow through on our call to put ourselves in places where we're willing to be ridiculed and held in contempt so majesty God's majesty from verse 1 secondly And we looked at this already, God's mercy in verse 3. Have mercy on us, Lord. Now, it's important as we look at this that we don't get caught up in the idea that mercy is something that God maybe or maybe doesn't bestow on us, that it depends on His whim, how He feels when He gets up that morning. In Exodus 33, there's the famous section of the text where Moses asks, to see God's face. In fact, then he asks to see God's glory. And we get that idea of him hiding in the cleft of the rock because God says, you can't see my face. But let me read you Exodus 22, 18 to 20. And this is premised on what happened earlier in verses 12 and 13, when Moses is saying, I want to be faithful to you. I want to understand what it means to follow through on the calling you've put on my life. And to do that, I need to, and he says it exactly like this, uh, to know you by name if you are pleased with me teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you he's wanting an engagement an encounter and the response from God is in verse 18 then Moses says now show me your glory your glory and God said I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. This is amazing. Here we are. The name of God, the glory of God is linked to the characteristic of mercy. At the heart of God, intricately part of his name and his glory is this defining characteristic. High and holy God, merciful God. Not begging for out-of-character action here. We're asking God to be internally consistent. Mercy comes in different ways. For Nehemiah, they built the wall. They were successful. Stephen was stoned to death. But there's the majestic vision that he had and the place that he has in redemptive history. And for us, what does it mean for us to trust his to trust in his mercy to look to his mercy perhaps it is to understand the depth of his majesty maybe that's what mercy really means that's certainly what it meant for nehemiah and for stephen in the different ways they saw that and the third thing we looked at god's majesty god's mercy and finally we look at god's faithfulness in verse 3 we see have mercy on us lord now the lord there. Is in capital letters if you're reading it in, in many of the versions. The reason it's in capital letters is because it stands for the word Yahweh. Yahweh is a covenant name. Yahweh is not some sort of abstract concept for the psalmist. He knows God's name and knows that God is covenantally or relationally, contractually committed to him. This is a relational or relationally contractual statement. God is saying, I have my role and you have your role and we have a relationship and I have spent my time throughout scripture and throughout history defining that. You are to be my people and this is what that looks like. And I am going to save you and I am gonna bring mercy to you. So the three things that help us to become committed pilgrims then is not some a bunch of spiritual exercises where we build up muscle. It's this submission and recognition and this dependence on God's majesty, God's mercy, and God's faithfulness. The foundation stones of a pilgrim's ability to wait on God's mercy are to look up and behold God's majesty, mercy, and faithfulness. (coughs) So we conclude by looking up at the greatest act of majesty mercy and faithfulness it is possible to see we look up and behold God's majesty mercy and faithfulness on the cross Jesus on the cross pilgrim number one we were family we were left at a rest stop because of our own stupidity and inability to be faithful to him and he didn't abandon us he came down and picked us up at great cost to himself now when we look at the cross we see the majesty of God. Only He, only He is able to save us. When we look at the cross, we see the mercy of God. It's in His character to save us. And when we look at the cross, we see the faithfulness of God. Hope in Christ is certain. Don't live in ways that escape hardship. Walk in the path of discipleship that commits you to calling that commits you to clash with the culture and leads to subtle, or sometimes not so subtle, ridicule and contempt. And wait on him, wait on Yahweh, and him alone for mercy. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm, we thank you for the challenge in it, to be salt and light, to be truly salt and light, to not get seduced by the culture of tolerance, certainly not to get caught up in acts of coercion or manipulation. But neither get caught up in this false notion that all worldviews are equal. Father, you are the creator and the sustainer. You are the Lord and the savior. And this is an exclusive claim. Help us not to be afraid to live lives which proclaim that. Help us to do that in love. For family that are lost, put those concerns, those, those needs, Put your concerns your needs on our hearts help us to work out faithfulness in this context we pray for your glory for your namesake in jesus name we pray amen